And so I'm quite excited today because I've got to preach on Mother's Day three times. This is the first time I've got to preach on Father's Day. So now, gentlemen, we get to get our own back. I've preached on hugging. I've preached on home shopping. Uh, I've preached on Eat, Pray, Love, a book about feelings and flowers and emotions. This week I get to preach on a passage all about superheroes. Sixteen superheroes of the Old Testament all listed here in this passage. And if there's one thing that all dads want to be, it's a superhero. You see, there's something very different, a different physicality between mums and dads. That's why I preach Eat, Pray, Love on Mother's Day and superheroes on Father's Day. It's because while mothers are emotionally mature and nurturing and caring, it's because fathers never grow up and want to be superheroes. I noticed this between Zoe and I when we were interacting. You may have noticed that we've borrowed a baby for the weekend. Um, It's um, a little Moses, and it's uh, Zoe's sister's. Approximately six month old, I'm told, is, is the technicality of it. But, you know, Zoe has slipped back into this maternal bond directly with this little thing. Have you noticed that mothers have this ability with babies to, to instantly bond and have this nurturing thing? They know how to hold them close so that they can feel and smell the warmth of the mother's body near them. That they hold them on the left-hand side where apparently they can actually feel and hear the mother's heartbeat. They just know how to cradle them and, and protect the head because it's weak. Whereas if you see a father get past a baby, they sort of keep it at a safe distance as if it may explode at any moment. And so holding it out like that, there's not quite so much we can do. Held down here, this this bond is instant and it's immediate. The only thing I don't understand is Zoe has this strange thing. When speaking to babies, she gets more and more high-pitched. I'm told that's a technicality because babies actually hear this higher pitch. It's something that just kicks in. And she goes, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Men don't do this to small babies. To a man, this is completely illogical. We don't talk to a small child in the same way we would talk to somebody who has poor mobile phone reception. It's not, it's not that the baby can't hear us. They just can't speak yet. So men communicate with small children in a completely different way. It's the only way you can communicate with a baby while holding it at arm's length. All men from caveman times to today do this. We communicate with small children by simply throwing them into the air like this and then catching them repeatedly. It's a universal language of love. Through this, we communicate much about danger and safety, although unwittingly, because as I say, emotionally, we're very immature and we just want to play a game. What happens is the first time you throw the baby in the air and you catch it, the baby, frankly, looks a little nervous and unsettled. And, of course, you can't hand a baby back looking like that, so you have to keep going and keep trying again higher and higher. And eventually, I'm not sure if babies love the danger or whether they love the safety of being caught. But something about the lesson they learn during that physical bonding teaches them that even though you're not holding them close, even though you don't smell like their mother, that you can be trusted that every time they're thrown in the air, that they will be caught. And it's through this kind of role play, through this kind of physical interaction, that dads get to become superheroes. That dad gets to enable their children to fly. That game is particularly good fun in a swimming pool because you don't even have to catch the child afterwards. You can simply launch them and then you can just let them go, if they can swim. That's the only caveat. 
And so by this kind of inspiration, by this physicality, children are inspired by the nurturing of their mothers and by the physical safety of the superhero in their lives. You know, fathers can seemingly do anything. Children, you know, my children would come running to me with their homework, and I had the answer for everything. They would come with a broken toy, and I would seemingly be able to mend it. It's just I had AA batteries. But to them, it was some sort of miracle that would occur. They would come with a broken arm, and I would have gaffer tape, and I would say, don't tell your mother. To little children this size, somebody who is so much stronger, so much more powerful than them, becomes a superhero. And by that inspiration, they are empowered to learn to walk, to ride, to run, to jump, to climb, to swim, to take risks, to know what it is to have confidence in themselves and the world around them, because by faith, they are inspired and empowered. And that's what our passage is about today. The opposite of that is that after 12 years of being a superhero, I now have three teenagers. I am no longer a superhero. I cannot pick them up, let alone throw them into the air. They wouldn't let me throw them into the air, even if I wanted to, because that would be so uncool and embarrassing. I've gone from being the wind beneath their wings to the gravity that keeps them somewhere safely near the ground. I'm just this angry old man with a list of rules that kind of sits around the house telling them not to do things that they now think are a brilliant idea. And so those are the two kinds of faith that I want to contrast as we come to this passage. Hebrews 11 calls faith that inspiration. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm talking about fathers because it's Father's Day. And I know to some people their father's character may have been very different. Maybe it wasn't somebody who modeled faith. Maybe it wasn't somebody who was very physical or maybe it was somebody who was too physical. But in all of our lives, there will be a character that you can call to mind who was that person that gave you that place of safety to become yourself, in whose arms you trusted that you would always be caught and therefore you were free to try and to explore and to adventure and go beyond yourself. That's the character we're bringing to mind today. Maybe it was your mother, maybe it was a cousin or a brother or a sister or an uncle, but that's what Hebrews 11 calls faith. Let's turn to the passage together, and we start, in fact, not even at verse 1, but with the heading, by faith. You see, verse 1 is not a dictionary definition of some sort of abstract faith. It's a call to action. And so quickly at the beginning we see what faith is, and then we're called to action by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Therefore, this whole passage is called by faith, not about faith, not this is what faith is, not you should have more faith. The passage is called by faith. The Oxford English Dictionary says that faith is a noun. It says it's complete trust or confidence in someone or something. I don't disagree with the definition, but I do disagree with it being called a noun. Faith is not a passive noun. It's an active verb. By faith, by faith, by faith. Faith is not the end. Faith is just the beginning. Faith is not something that we crave more of for ourselves, but it's something that flows through us and in us and is inspired in us from someone else. So... Hebrews 11, verse 1. Probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible and certainly one of the best definitions or examples of what faith means. The NIV translation. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. There are many different translations of this verse, which makes it difficult when you're preaching, as you know that there must not really be a very good English translation of what they're trying to get a handle on here. Probably the best is the one that most of us know off by heart about it, perhaps, from the King James Version. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I'm going to look at those three things, what the NIV calls being sure, being certain, and the things that we don't see. And that's the substance, the evidence, and the things not seen from the King James. We'll take them in reverse order because in order to understand faith, we have to understand what we're putting our faith in. And Hebrews 11 says that we're putting our faith in something that we cannot see. The world looks at us as Christians and says, well, that means you have blind faith because you're, you're putting your faith in something that you cannot see. But again here, our translation is not right because Hebrews 11 doesn't say that God is hiding. It doesn't say that God is invisible. It doesn't say that God is missing. It doesn't say that God is so small or so beyond that we just physically can't see him. It simply means that he is beyond our senses in two dimensions that really matter. First of all, in time. And then he's so much bigger than the space around us. We can't possibly see him, not because he's so small, but because he's so far beyond our human senses. Have a look at verse 3 of Hebrews, where we understand something of the mighty scale that we're trying to come to terms with in this passage. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen, everything around you and I, was not made out of what was visible. In other words, the unseen is so much bigger than the seen that everything around us is just a fraction of it, just a small shadow, just a small part. It's not that God is less real than we are, it's that he's so much more real. And then from 2 Corinthians, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, what our senses can comprehend, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So in this passage, when it talks about things not seen or things hoped for, we're not talking about things that are somehow absent in the present. They're here, but they're just so far bigger than and beyond our human senses. I was at um, Spring Harvest recently, and I can't remember whether it was Gerard Kelly or Malcolm Duncan. Maybe if somebody was at Spring Harvest, they can tell me. But he was talking about Matthew 14. That's the bit where Jesus has sent the disciples ahead of him. They're in the boat, and Jesus decides, as you do when you're Jesus, to just walk across the water to get to the boat, because that's the easiest way for Jesus to get to a boat, apparently. So Matthew 14, 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, as you do. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But we now know that the unseen world is more real than the seen world. And that makes sense when we look at this passage, because my natural reaction to the, pa to the passage is to see Jesus as a ghost. I mean, we had, I think, up here when Jenny was preaching, a ghostly figure of Jesus walking on the lake. Jesus couldn't walk on water because he's less real than the water, that somehow he's a shadow or a phantom or just a ghostly kind of figure. Jesus can walk on the water because he's more real than the water is. It's the water that's an illusion. It's this which is temporary, and it's Jesus who is real. 
And that matters when we think about the Holy Spirit present here this morning, when we think about Jesus seated here amongst us, wherever one or more of us are gathered. Jesus is going to be present here. And I often weaken that by thinking of a sort of spooky, temporary, kind of not real, abstract, shadowy Jesus figure. We think of the Holy Spirit as something like will-o'-the-wisp, just kind of a breath amongst us. But we're called to understand that Jesus is more real than I am in this place today. The Holy Spirit is more real than each and every one of us. What is unseen is so much greater than what is seen, so much more real. And so in Hebrews 11, we're told that faith is coming to terms with the fact that our senses are so limited. It's like we're born blind or deaf, and one of our senses is missing. And the rest of the senses kind of adjust themselves to compensate. And so perhaps if our sight begins to fail us, our hearing may become better or our touch may become more sensitive. There is a sense which is missing. Because beyond all of our human senses is this understanding of just how big the kingdom of heaven, just how real the world is beyond what our human eyes can see. And it's not blind faith just because we can't see it by human sight. We look for, well, the passage says, the evidence, the fingerprints of God. You are all fingerprints of God in my life. The world as I experience it, scripture as I comprehend it, worship as I'm lifted into his presence, prayer as I hear him speaking. These are the evidences of this unseen world. And what we're called to do in Hebrews 11 is to do something quite remarkable. Not to have blind faith, but to have faith in something which we cannot, with our earthly senses, begin to comprehend. Something bigger, something more. To surrender this temporary, ethereal, now as we know, unreal world around us and join in partnership with God in something more, something outside of ourselves. And that makes sense because you can't have blind faith because you can't generate faith. And and I'm aware of the fact that when we speak about things like faith from up here, it sounds like we're being critical and saying, you should have more faith. But you can't generate faith. You can't invent it from inside yourself. Faith is something which is inspired in you from outside of yourself. It's, it's relative to you. Next week, many of us will be going away to Pilgrim Hall to, the strap line says, exercise our faith. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be running and jumping and going on a treadmill. It doesn't mean we have to do push-ups or sit-ups or anything physical. What it means is we have to draw near to God. Because faith is not something we generate. It's something which is inspired in us. As we take the effort to get closer and closer to God in prayer and in worship next week, he will move in people's lives and they will be inspired to new depths of faith. Not because that becomes an end in itself, not because it's an object that they possess, but because through that they are enabled and empowered. And we're not just given a glimpse of faith. That evidence that we're given, those fingerprints of God that means we find him guilty of this bigger world, are not just a glimpse through a portal to some future time. It's a present reality in our lives, and we're given an offer of a contract here in Hebrews 11. That first set of words that in, in, our, in your NIV says being sure. In the New Living Translation says confidence, assurance. In the message, firm foundation. In the King James Version, substance. 
is the same word that in Greek times would have been stamped onto the title deeds of your house. You're offered a contract from God. That if you react to the evidence of this bigger kingdom, this power beyond ourselves, these arms big enough to catch us whenever we fall, to equip and inspire and enable us to be so much more, then we're offered an exchange of contracts. Have you moved house and there's that sort of day that comes when you give over the contract to your house and you're given the contract to your new one and then you can have the keys and then you take ownership. That's what Hebrews 11 says. God longs to exchange contracts with you so that you can become, what it says later on, an alien and a stranger on earth. God says, will you surrender your contract on the things you can see? Not because I want to give you something less or something invisible or something intangible, but I want you to become a conspirator with me in something that is infinitely greater, infinitely more. Will you give up the contract to your current house? Exchange contracts with me today. And I'll give you the title deeds to the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you the keys to eternity. That's what we're offered by faith. Not something that we then keep to ourselves, but, and just have a look through and see if you can count while I'm talking, how many times it now goes on to say, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Faith is not something you possess. Faith is not something that you create. It's not an end. It is just the beginning. It literally means to just to trust. And having put our trust, to act, to rest, to be confident in. I like the French translation best, actually. It calls it a guarantee. God gives us a warranty, a guarantee on his promise that we are safe. Now, to the superheroes for the Father's present. At least 11 names in the section that we read of Old Testament superheroes. And what are they measured in? What does God care about? The characters that we read involve a prostitute, a murderer, uh, a womanizer, a philanderer, Uh, A drunk, not mentioned here. The only thing God credits to them is their faith. It probably involves some people who were pretty physically strong, pretty physically brave, wonderful leaders. Some of them may be terrible people. It doesn't mention. All God cares about is that by faith. We're repeatedly told in Scripture that the one metric that God keeps, the only thing he really cares about and measures, is that we have faith. We're told here, that to the elders, it's credited to them as righteousness. We're told, uh, again, that it's pleasing to God. My son's doing his GCSEs at the moment. And, of course, the first advice you give somebody taking an exam is that the length of their answer, the amount of effort that they take, should be matched to the score that you can get for that question. There's no point pouring your heart and mind and all your knowledge into something if it only scores one point. And then finally you've got no time to write the essay to get the other 15 So why do so many of us pour all of our effort into something which God gives no credit to? God doesn't care how big my house is, how much money I have, how much fame I have, how much power. But he does care about my faith. Because only by faith can I partner with him in the kingdom of heaven. Only by faith am I empowered to take action beyond what I can do, beyond what I can see, and to the places where God longs to take me. Hebrews 11 doesn't promise that it will be easy or without difficulty, but it does promise that what we see now only from a distance, 
It says, uh, I'm looking for the passage, they did not receive the things promised, they only saw and welcomed them from a distance. That's what we're called to do, to welcome the kingdom into our lives, to admit that we are alien and aliens and strangers on earth. And then, by faith, we may partner in God with the great things he already has planned for us as individuals, for this church, and for the kingdom to come to this place. Let me give you an example of how far that faith can move us beyond our own capabilities. That inspirational character that you may have thought about, us superhero dads. I have a little friend in church, his name uh, is not Charles, it's, um, his name is Isaac, he's about this big. Some of you may have met Isaac, he's a very fun-loving little blonde-haired kid, and I, and I had the, the pleasure of, of being the only dad in creche a few weeks ago. So while the mothers were at the other end talking to the babies, Isaac and I got a little bored, to be honest, at the other end, and we discovered that you can turn the little tyke's kitchen in creche into a sort of rocket launcher. What you do, in case you ever find yourselves in creche, is you take the weighing scales and you put as many cups as you can on one half of the weighing scales, and then you smack the other half of the weighing scales as hard as you possibly can, and the cups all fly up dangerously high into the air if you're Isaac's side, And he just thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. I can't quite figure out how the game progressed to this, but we started with the flying cups, and then he would climb under chairs to get them, and then somehow I would roll him in a blanket so he couldn't move and he couldn't see, and I would sort of throw him across the room. I'm not quite sure it happened, but at one point, he got to touch the ceiling. And is the child protection team in? No, good. So anyway... Isaac thought this was so much fun and he was laughing so hard that he actually disturbed his mother in the service through the wall. This is why I think dads should do creche more often. It would be brilliant. It would be very dangerous and you would be sitting here in church and just smoke would come wafting under the door and you'd think, what are they doing in the creche? But it would be spectacular. So Isaac and I became best friends. Last Sunday, I had to go and get my daughter from... uh, She was playing with the little kids after between the two services so I had to go there Isaac caught sight of me and ran across the big hall pointing into the sky pointing into the sky pointing into the sky so I thought okay this is fine I'll pick up Isaac I picked him up and he's still pointing up so I lifted him up and he's still pointing him up so I threw him as high as I could into the air and he's still the whole time pointing up into the air Isaac wanted to touch the ceiling the only problem was we were now in the big hall at the back of the church But Isaac had faith. Isaac, the whole time we were there, and still to this point, and by the way, I didn't throw him all the way to the ceiling. I did, and I'm quite proud of this, managed to push him up through the basketball hoop so he could look out over the top. Isaac thought that was great. But that's the faith I want for us. Next week as we go to Pilgrim Hall, and by faith and not by sight as we leave the church this morning, to point into the sky and say, by faith, I know you can take me there. By faith, if I fall, I know you will catch me. Isaac had faith to point into the unknown. He could never get to the ceiling by himself. And if he did, it certainly wouldn't be safe. But by faith, he said, I want you to take me there. And so next week, I pray at Pilgrim Hall, we are inspired by the worship. That we are built up by the word of God, inspired and encouraged and equipped to see these fingerprints of God in one another's lives, in the grace that has touched the individuals here, whether that's in the fellowship between the sessions, whether it's from Paul in the sessions. I pray that we will leave Pilgrim Hall not by sight but by faith unless you're driving. 
in which case, look where you're going because there's a speed camera just as you come out of Pilgrim Hall. But other than that, I want us to leave that place equipped not to return back to Linfield and all that we see around us, but to look like Isaac right up to point of the heavens and say, yes, Lord, let's exchange contracts. Let's leave not to go back to Linfield, not to the world that we can see, but to something which is so much bigger and so much more. I'm not safe or equipped to go there on my own, but by faith I pray he will take me there, he will take this church there and bring the kingdom home.